Well, welcome to high school officially, if you're a freshman. Welcome to the next grade officially. If you were a freshman before, you are no longer a freshman. You're a sophomore. Congratulations. You'll be freshmen soon again. Sophomores, you're juniors. That's like the, that's the one that doesn't matter as much, you know? <laughs> no offense. Now you're upperclassmen. I guess that's a big deal. And then you juniors, you're seniors. That's a big deal. That's right. But welcome to the new year. And the reason it's uh, good for us to take a step back every new year and just consider our direction is because there is a very, very popular idea out there that has pervaded a lot of the way that most people think. And it's this, that you don't need any direction. It's a very popular opinion, that you should go and you should wander through life doing whatever you choose to do, however you choose to do it, and that is what will lead to ultimate satisfying fulfillment and happiness. Now, if you go to church, if you read the Bible, hopefully you know that that's not true. Hopefully you know that there is something better that God's Word offers, and that's what we're all about here in True North. The reason we're called True North is because, you know, on a compass, there's such a thing as magnetic north, and there's something called true north. True north is not the same as magnetic north. Magnetic north is just wherever your uh, compass points, but there's something that's up in the north pole where the axis of the earth really spins around. That's called true north. And here's a ministry. What we want to do is help provide direction. Not that we have a lot of wisdom that will give you direction, but God has wisdom that will provide direction. And not just direction, but also an aiming point. True North is technically not just a direction. It's really an aiming point. It's somewhere that does not move no matter where you are on the earth. You can look to True North, and that's a sure and steady direction. And that's what we have here in True North, not just with the people that are here, but with what we're about to talk about from Psalm 16. What we have that's a privilege and a gift that we don't deserve is we have God as our guide. So you do need direction. If you've been sold on the lie that you don't need direction and you should just wander through life and do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, that will not lead to satisfaction. It will not lead to happiness, but following God and his ways will do that. And there's a psalm that talks all about that. It's where we get our name from, and it's Psalm 16. So if you've got a Bible, please open up to Psalm 16. If you don't have a Bible, we should have some Bibles in the back. One every week here in True North, when we open up God's Word in a sermon. I want you all to have God's Word in front of you. So that's why we got Bibles in the back. But really, the best thing for you to do would be to bring your own Bible, to bring your own notebook. We got pens in the back. You don't have to bring your own pen unless you're fancy like that and you got a fountain pen or something like that um, or fancy color pen, but whatever. Point is, we want you to be ready every week here, ready to open God's Word and take notes about God's Word to keep for the rest of your life. Here in Psalm 16, David is saying to God that he trusts him. Some of these psalms that we could look at are all about a complaint. Some psalms are about teaching. Other psalms are just the psalmist's declaration that I trust God. And that's what one, this one is. This is from David, and he basically says, I trust God, and God is my true north. God is the aiming point and direction of my life, and because of that, everything else will be okay. Look how he starts out. In psalm 16, verse 1, he says, preserve me which means guard me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He says God is his safe, secure place to be, right? It's like, okay, that's kind of confusing. What does it mean for God to be a place or a safe place? His point, as he's going to describe in this passage, is he says, I always go back to God, whether things are good or things are bad. God is the safe place that I can be at. He'll guard and protect me. So it's a prayer. He says, preserve me, protect me, O God. Verse 2 says, I say to the Lord, so this is another prayer that he says to God, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. 
That's really important to remember every once in a while. It's a good thing to say to God every once in a while that, God, you are my God. You're my Lord. You're my boss. You're the one I'm going to follow. And then what he says is, I have nothing good apart from you. Every good thing I enjoy, every good blessing or experience or thing or food or person that's in my life, it's all inextricably like just bound up with God. Like you cannot separate God from his gifts. And he says, God is my good and everything good that I have is all bound up in God. He says, verse three, as for the saints in the land, the people who love God, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The excellent ones. Like uh, they're the elite. It's like looking at the world and you know, there's certain people that are rich and popular and famous and there are certain people that nobody will ever hear about. There's the excellent ones and then there's everybody else. He says, you know what? You know who the real excellent ones are in this world? It's not just the powerful. It's not just the strong. It's not just the rich. It's not just the beautiful. The real excellent ones are the people that love God. He says to me, I have all my delight in them. I love God's people because really I value them highly. Verse four is the opposite. He says, and by the way, if I don't value God or his people, it says the sorrows or the sadnesses of those who run after another God shall multiply. We have this idea, and this is what I was talking about at the beginning, that we think that our best option in life is to choose whatever path we want to and pursue whatever end we want to, and it will all lead to happiness as long as we're passionate about whatever we're pursuing. David says that's a lie. He says the sorrows and the sadnesses of the people that chase anything, anything but God, their sadnesses will multiply. I think it's actually a reference back to the fall in Genesis 3 where God told Adam and Eve, your sorrows will multiply. And that happened for Eve in childbirth and Adam in the work that he was going to do. And the point was, you were, you were not going to have any sadnesses when you were following me. But now that you've chosen to follow your sin and your passions, now your sorrows are not just going to be what they are and you've got to deal with them. Your sorrows will get bigger and bigger because you've chosen to go against me. Here's what he says here to us. If we're chasing anything but God, if we're pursuing any aim that's separate from God, your sadnesses will not get better and alleviated, but they'll get worse. Your anxieties are not going to be solved by going to something other than God. They're just going to get worse. Whatever depression or fear that we have, it's not going to get better by pursuing something other than God. It's going to get worse. So David says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. He says, I'm not even going to mention them in this prayer. And certainly I'm not going to do what they do. The drink offerings of blood. That was like, you know, some ritual that these people did to serve other gods. And David says, not only I'm not taking part in their sin, because I'm not even going to say their name right now in this prayer. So we don't even know who he's talking about. Because David says, I don't even want to take their names right now as I'm singing about this and praying about this. In verse 5, he gets back to God. Look what he says about God. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now, that's a lot of Old Testament language that if you were an Israelite, you'd understand better, where he says, you're my chosen portion. That's a reference back to all the land allotments that they had in the land. So you probably don't talk about lot sizes. But if your dad is in real estate, he's always talking about lots and lot sizes. And is that a good piece of land or a bad piece of land? That's what he's referring to. But he says, it's not that my land is good, or that my food, my cup is good, it's that God is like all of those things for me. And he's good. It's like I, you know, someone gave me a, a plot of land and it wasn't just a you know, lame little plot of land in the corner, stuff behind two buildings in the back alley. 
It's like, no, no, your land, so to speak, that God has given you by being your God, it's, a, it's an expansive, beautiful piece of land with natural resources and meadows and streams and amazing buildings and architecture. Like That's the land that God gave you by being your God. He says it's a good thing. You're my chosen portion, my cup, my lot. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Continuing this analogy about like how God is like a good piece of land, which I know you probably don't compare God to land very often, but he does, right? He says, my lines, like the property lines for me, they've fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When I look around and think that the God of heaven and earth is my God, when I think that he loves me and cares for me, when I think that he guides me and gives me his word, I, I have it really good. That's what he's stepping back and saying. Verse 7, he says, then, then I'll bless the Lord. I'll praise God who gives me counsel. He helps me. And in the night also my heart instructs me. The idea is like his heart is so trained by being guided by God that even when it's the middle of the night and he wakes up in some kind of distress, it's like his heart is so attuned to God that he's constantly corrected. Because my heart instructs me because God's been my guide. Verse 8 is the center of the whole thing that he's talking about here. Verse 8 is our theme verse. Verse 8 is the point of all this. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. God is my true north. God's the one I'm following. He's always before me. And he's at my right hand in the sense that he's always with me. Therefore, I shall not be shaken. There's nothing that can mess up my life, even if everything is taken away because I'm following God. God is always before me, and I've set him there. The idea is I've chosen to say, I'm aligning myself with God, right? You can't move God. You can't say, okay, God, you're going to not do this anymore. Now you're going to do this. How do you set the Lord always before you? Really, it's by you coming in alignment with him. You saying, I'll follow you. You're always going to be my guide. Whatever I do, whatever choices I make, whatever relationships I have, it's all going to be centered in I want to do what God wants me to do. Therefore, verse 9, because of that, my heart, like my inside, I'm, I'm glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. That's, that's talking about his body. So he says, in my heart, like internally, I'm good. I'm satisfied. I'm, I'm at peace. And frankly, my body and my, the external life that I live, that's secure too. He says so much so that in verse 10, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That was the Old Testament word for where you go when you die. You won't let me go to the grave. This is a big statement. David, I think, is trying to say, you're not going to let me die. At least not now. You might say, well, didn't he let him die at some point? We'll talk about that because there's a person who comes along in history who is not abandoned to Sheol, who doesn't let his body stay in the grave, the person of Jesus Christ, so that we now don't have to die and stay dead. This is the main text that Peter uses in his first sermon ever in Acts chapter 2 about Jesus. But he says, look, I trust God so much that if God's always before me, in life he guides me, even in death I'm going to be okay. I'll be fine even if I die, because I know that God won't let me stay dead. Verse 11, the end, he says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, extending forever. The point here is he thanks God, saying, God, thank you for showing me the path of life. You've given me the, the, the steps to take. You've guided me, and also, frankly, he's presented this to you in giving you the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he showed you the path of life. He showed you the right way to live. It's very clear. And you also could choose a lot of wrong ways to live. There's plenty of other paths that I'm sure you could take. But he says to God, thank you. You showed me 
the path of life. And I know that in your presence, when I walk with you on this path of life, there's fullness of joy. Living as a Christian, even if things aren't always good on the outside, there's fullness of joy as I walk this path. And frankly, once I get to the destination, once I'm with you and at your right hand, I know that there are pleasures forevermore. Better than whatever other thing that I was chasing. Better than whatever thing that I thought was going to make me happy here. Because I know that when I'm with you, living with you forever, I'm going to be okay. That's why this is such a good theme passage for us in True North, because the idea is you've got multiple paths that you can choose, and really you start choosing those paths when you're in high school. There's this other lie that is told to you, that you start to choose your path when you're in college. That's ridiculous. You choose it when you're in high school. You already set a trajectory for the kind of adult you're going to be when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And then you go up and walk on the path that you've chosen. But when do you really choose what that path is going to be? It's when you're here in True North. Your whole life will be shaped by the direction that you choose to go to while you're a high school student, believe it or not. Big point for us this morning, main idea is that we need to do what verse 8 says. Set the Lord always before us. Say, I want everything in my life to come in alignment with what God wants. I don't want to choose another path. I want to choose the path that God lays out before me. There's five things to notice here, five points we're going to have this morning that are all about that. The first one comes from verse 1 and 2, and also you see in verse 5 and 6, where David keeps saying, God is good, and he is like the best thing that I have. He's like that pleasant land. He's, he's like the, the best thing I could ever experience or have. He's it. He doesn't say that God's good gifts are the best thing I have. That's what we might expect to say. Like, hey, you know, I have a great life, you know, great family, we have a great church, and we're thankful for those, but that's not what he says here. He says, God is my highest good. There's a difference between those two things. There are some people here who think, yeah, I'm thankful that God has given me a great life. That's not what David says. He doesn't say, thank you, God, for giving me a good life. He says, God, thank you for giving me you. The thing I'm most thankful for is that I actually get to know who God is. That's point number one. I want you to think of God himself as your highest good, your greatest good. Think of God himself as your greatest good. Some of us think of God's gifts as our greatest good. Some of us think of the things that we've experienced or things that we want to experience. It's like, that's when I'm going to live real life, when I get to experience that or go to that place or be there or have those relationships. But David says, as a guy who's kind of on the other side of a lot of that, he says, God, he's my highest good. This language about like a land allotment. There's a time in the scripture where God goes up to a group of Israelites and says, you're not going to get land. Everybody else is going to get land, but you're not. But you know what you're going to get? You're going to get something better than land. You're going to get me. So when he went up to the group of Israelites known as the Levites, they became the, the priests in the land. And God says to them, he says, I am your inheritance. In Numbers 18.20, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion. You're going to know me better than they're going to know me. You're going to serve me more than they're going to serve me. So that's the inheritance I'm giving you. I'm not giving you land. I'm giving you myself. Because your inheritance will be among the people of Israel. It will be me. That's why in verse 2 he says, I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord. You're it. If I don't have anything else, I'm, I have enough. Because God, not only are you enough, you're more than enough. That's the point. I wonder if you think of God that way. Or I wonder if you don't think of God that way. You could even be a professing Christian who does all the good church stuff and you, know, you serve and you do a lot of good things, but you could still not think that way. 
you could still think that the thing you want next is your highest good and your greatest good, or growing up is your greatest good, or leaving your house, or living on your own, or going to college, or getting married. You can think all those things are your highest good, but you will be wrong because God is your highest good. And for some of us, the moment we can recognize that is the moment we can start saying, I'm living the right way that God wants me to now, not so concerned that I'm not at the next place. He says, I have no good apart from you. Like every gift that God has, every good thing that I have, all the, the, the air and the, the water and the family and the food and the fun, all of it is connected to God. It's like you can't take God out of all of it. That's how he sees it. It's like if you go to Cane's, right? We're having Cane's for Welcome Freshman Night. Um, I'm kind of in a in-between right now. I used to be pro-Chick-fil-A. I was, you know, when I wanted chicken, I go to Chick-fil-A. I'm on the other side right now, no offense, but I'm on the Cane's thing. Like if I want to get, I know, I'm sorry. Sorry, Kyle, I know. Yeah, offensive to the Van Schoik family. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know, I'm in the Cane's kick right now. And uh, there's one thing that I always substitute, though. I never get it. It's the coleslaw, right? Nobody likes coleslaw. You know, but I like salad, though. So initially, when I didn't know what coleslaw was, I'm like, dude, I'll, I'll, yeah, if it's like salad, I'll do salad. Here's what I didn't know. It's like, not really salad. It's really like mayo soup, <laughs> right? It's not so much of like salad with some dressing. No, it's mayo soup. So here's something that I could go up to Cane's and ask, hey, can I get the slaw with no mayo? It's like, well, you, you could get the ingredient, I, but you couldn't really get coleslaw without mayo, right? You can't can't really separate out those two. That's what I wanted to do the first time, I, I, I promise. Like, the first time coleslaw was presented as an option, I'm like, what's in it? It's like, oh, mayo, you know, some greens. I'm like, well, could you just take the mayo out? And whatever person that was describing this to me, stupid John, they're like, hey, stupid John, hey, uh, can't take mayo out of coleslaw. That's what coleslaw is. You remove the mayo, you don't have coleslaw anymore. You just have, like, cabbage and, like, vinegar, whatever else they put in it. That's why I don't like coleslaw. Here's the point. Just like you can't extract mayo from coleslaw, his whole thing is when he looks at every good thing he has, he can't extract God from it. It's like God's mixed into everything. I have a good family. Well, it's from God. I have a good church. Well, it's God's church, and he lets me be a part of it. I have good things at, you know, at school, and you know, I, I get to be with my friends. Well, those are, those are God's people. God lets me be with them. It's like he can't get away from God when he looks at all the good things he has. And that's a good thing. I just want you to start thinking of the good gifts God gives that way. You can't even remove God from it. Problem is, some of us will be in times where it feels like all the good gifts are removed. Seems like David is at a time when mostly things are going well for him. But there's other times where God's people are not doing super well. Reminds me of what Asaph says in Psalm 73 when he talks about how his life wasn't super good, and that it kind of felt like God wasn't paying attention to him anymore. And in Psalm 73, Asaph has to say, you know what? I had my perspective in the wrong place. I kept thinking God was good if all the stuff in my life was good, but I forgot that God's good to me no matter what. Psalm 73, verse 25, he says, I'll actually start in verse 23, if you're quick to turn there, or I'll just read it for you. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Just like I have to drag Eden along with her right hand, and she doesn't always want to go wherever I want to go. It's like God says, or Asaph says about God, you hold my right hand. You're with me all the time. You guide me 
with your counsel, which is the same phrase used in Psalm 16. Right? I'm guided by your counsel. God teaches us. How does he do that? Well, through his word. He says, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Anybody who tells you that the Old Testament doesn't talk about heaven or being with God after you die, they haven't read this or Daniel 12 or even Psalm 16. There's clearly this hope, even in the Old Testament, that I'm going to be with God when I die. I'll be received to glory. Verse 15, or uh, 25. He asks this question. Well, then whom have I in heaven but you? Do I have any claim in heaven? Can I say, oh, I'm a good person. Oh, I, I should be allowed to be there. Asaph says, no. Whom have I in heaven but you? God, you're the only one in heaven for me. And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. It's not where he started in the psalm. In the psalm, he wasn't thinking that. But after he worships God, he realizes God is my highest good. All the things that I thought I wanted, I don't, I don't really need those things. And I shouldn't want them. And he can even say he doesn't desire anything besides God. Verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. Right? Flesh and heart. We've already talked about that. Your external life, your flesh, your body, your health can fail. And even your heart can fail. You can despair and be anxious or scared or depressed. He says, even my heart and my flesh fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That same language. That God is what has been given to me. It's the best thing I have is God. Think of God as your highest good. That's what we're trying to get at. If you think that your, good, your gifts from God are your highest good, you start to worship the gifts rather than the giver. That comes from Romans 1. A whole group of people in our world exist who always worship the good things they have and not God. Don't miss that. Back in Psalm 16, in verse 3, he says, because I love God so much, I love the people that love God. That's another defining characteristic of high school. You're going to be shaped by the people you choose to be around. You choose to be with people who love God more, well, then you'll probably love God more when you leave. And you'll probably love God more as an adult if you choose to be around people who love God more in high school. Inversely, you'll probably love God less and chase the wrong paths even more in high school and as an adult if you make choices as a high school student to say, I don't really care about being with God's people. I just want to be with whoever I want to be right now. That's why point number two is also important for us to get. Point number two is this, find greater joy in the people who love God. David says, all my delights in them, like of all the people, they're the excellent ones. They might not be the prettiest, they might not be the richest, they might not be the most successful, but it doesn't matter because to God they're most important and to me they're most important. I wonder who are the people that you would aspire to be with, that you just want to be like. If I could spend 15 minutes with them, like who are the people? And I I bet if we really went through the list and you really named all the people that you long to be with, how many of them would be people who hate God, who don't follow God, who don't care about God? Psalm 16, follow Psalm 15, very interesting, Psalm 15, it's all about David asking the same question, who's going to be with God? Who's going to be close to God? Who will dwell in his holy hill? Who's going to be there? And he says, yeah, he who walks blamelessly, right? the, the person who does what's right. But he goes on, and in verse 4 he says, here's the kind of people that are going to be with God. Verse 4 says, the people who, who, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Who are the righteous people? The people who don't look up to evil people. 
Some of us aspire to be with evil people. And it's like, you, we don't put it that way. We don't think, yeah, I, all my best friends, I want them to be the people who hate God. We don't put it that way. But if it's like if I started a list, who are the celebrities you just really want to be with? The celebrities you really want to be like. If I ask you, really? Do you really want to be like them? I hope that you're like, well, no, I actually don't really want to be. Well, that's, that's a good step. But if you really do, you've got to understand. The righteous people in this room are the people in whose eyes a vile person is despised. That you don't think highly of them. Despise means to look down. Right? The idea is like, I'm not, I'm not so excited about having a dinner with that celebrity or meeting that athlete because like they're, they're evil. If they're evil, of course. And then it says, but, and this is Psalm 15, 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. That's the kind of person that's going to be with God. That's the person that's close to God here and now. Is the people who honor those who fear the Lord. They don't make fun of the people who fear the Lord and say, oh, I can't believe you. You you like God that much? Oh, you don't want to do this? You don't want to do that? Oh, you're so dumb. No, to honor the people who fear the Lord. To say, I respect the fact that you honor and fear God so much that it changes your behavior. Like I said, the people that you choose to be around will really shape you. David knows that. He says, the saints in the land, they're my favorite people. Reminds me of what we're going to study later on in the summer, Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. If your friends are idiots and lead you into doing idiotic things, you will suffer harm. That's another way of putting it. Fools, idiots, interchangeable. You probably not called a person a fool recently, but the word idiot kind of captures it in English. We'll talk more about the foolish person later, but I just want you to notice that in verse 3. In verse 4, we say something that might even be more applicable to us, where he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. I want to think about that for a second. What does that mean? That we chase other gods or idols or um, things that we try to get to replace God. All of that will lead to more sadness, not less sadness. Point number three, I want you to write this down. I want you to stop chasing God replacements to make you happy. I want you to stop chasing God replacements to think that that's going to somehow satisfy you or, or, or scratch the itch or give you what you want. This is a big thing when it comes to anxiety or, or depression or whatever. We, we run to things that we think will help, but they just make it worse. If you're not going to God, even if you go to good things like friends or, or, or family, and if it's all separate from God, like I don't want to hear about God, I don't want to think about God, don't talk to me about God. If that's what we're thinking when we're sad, it's not going to make our sadness better. It's just going to make sadness worse. Have you heard the story of Christopher McCandless? You know who that person is, Christopher McCandless? He was known as Alexander Supertramp. <laughs> Very fake name. You know, some names are like, that's really fake, that's really fake name. Alexander Supertramp. This guy was famous because in the 90s, he was from a, a decent family. He, you know, uh, went to college. He graduated from a four-year university. It was hard to get into. And he kind of went off the grid. He sold everything he had. He kind of consolidated all of his money. He gave it to some, like, um, wilderness charity, I think. And it was like $24,000, which was a lot in the 90s, right? He sold everything, and he went all, you know, living off the land vibes. Uh, he went a lot of different places. One of the places he went was Alaska, and that's where he ended up dying. He basically thought, you know, it's a good idea. I'm going to live in Alaska off the grid. I'm just going to live off the land, and I'll be really great. Problem was, he was not a great hunter. He was not a great gatherer. He was not as smart as he thought. But he had the wanderlust mentality, right? He was going to go and, you know, 
His only exciting thing was out there, out there. I'll just do something out there. He lasted for 113 days, but he ended up dying in a school bus in the middle of the Alaskan desert. And the reason, not desert, but, you know, the deserted area. Um, The reason they say he died is most likely because of the water that he drank. Because the water that was right there was close to where the ocean was. So it wasn't necessarily fresh water. So the idea was he was drinking this water that he thought was fresh water. But if you know what happens when you drink salt water or seawater, it actually removes the, the, the water from your cells and you actually get more and more dehydrated. So what this guy was doing was to, to satisfy his thirst, he was going to something, but every drink he took, every liter that was in his body just emptied him out more and, and he died. The thing that he thought would make him happy or the thing that he thought would satisfy him was the thing that killed him. And that's exactly what David's saying here. For many of us, the things that we think will make us happy are the things that are killing you. Some of you want to be so popular. Some of you would die to have millions of followers. And you think that's the greatest thing. But it would probably ruin you. Some of you think you want to have tons of relationships and tons of friends and you just want to be the most well-liked. Some of you want money, right? I don't know what you want, what your thing is. But the things that you chase that are not God, they're just going to make things worse. It reminds me of what God said to his group of people in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2, he said, Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. What is he saying? I am the provider. I'm the one that gave every good thing to them, and they abandoned me to chase idols that are like broken cisterns. The cistern is the little hole you dig in the ground, and you can imagine at the beach, you dig a hole in the ground, you pour water in it, what happens? Right? Water goes away, down through the sand. If a cistern is broken, It's got cracks and holes and the bottom of a water jug in the middle of the ground. You pour water in it, it's just going to let the water go out the bottom. His whole point is God's people at that time in Jeremiah 2 had chosen to say, I don't want to follow God. I don't want to live for God. I don't want you, God. And they chose to serve and worship these other idols. He says, what you did was you forsook the fountain of living waters. I gave you everything. And I would have continued to give you everything, but you try to chase it somewhere else. A lot of you are doing that too. Jesus says in Matthew 16, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and in the end lost or forfeited his soul? Some of us want to take that trade just to try it. Just to assure you, you need to stop chasing God replacements. Frankly, that's why some of you are anxious, fearful, and depressed is because you're chasing God replacements. Because you're chasing other things to try to satisfy yourself and it's not working. David says, God's the one that gives me counsel. God's the one that is always before me. And because of that, I'm not afraid. But that's what happens, really, if you're a Christian and you start focusing on God and centering your life under what he wants you to do. Then you get this extra level of fearlessness that you're like, I'm fine. I am living rightly before God. I have peace with God. I trust that Jesus has paid for my sin. And I'm serving God. I'm not, I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be scared about the future because I'm rightly in line with what God wants me to do. So I'm not afraid. David says so much so that I'm not even afraid to die. And David had a very limited knowledge of what that looked like. But for us, we have a full picture of how God deals with the problem of sin and death. The Bible is very clear that because Jesus died and Jesus rose again, though you die, 
you can rise again for eternity because Jesus rose again. You actually know how that works. He didn't know how it was going to work. He just trusted that God would take care of it, the kind of faith that he had back then, the kind of faith that we need to have now. Point number four is this. I want you to trust God will keep you secure in life and death. If the Lord's always before you, if you're rightly aligned with God, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior and you're walking the path of life, well, then you can be secure. Just trust God. You're secure, not just in life. He said that, right? He said, hey, the Lord's always before me. I shall never be shaken. The idea is I'm following God. I'm serving God. Whatever else happens to me, I'm okay. He goes further. He says, even if I die, God won't even abandon me to shield to the grave. I told you that Peter quoted this in Acts 2. He said, after he quoted the passage, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, so this is the New Testament, Peter says to these people, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. This is Peter saying about what David wrote, the verses we just read, that he would not be abandoned to Hades or Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God, raised up, and of that were all witnesses. Remember, this was right after Jesus rose from the dead, and people knew it, and they saw him. And the whole point is, remember that Old Testament passage that we just read this morning? Peter looked back on that and said, that was looking forward to what Jesus would do so that you could be secure in life and death. So that you, as a Christian today, don't have to fear death, as Hebrews 2, 14 says. You don't have to be enslaved to this fear of death like so many people are. Like, and for some of us, maybe that is the root of some of our anxiety because you're afraid to die. And you're afraid of what's going to happen because you know you're not rightly aligned with God. We took all the anxiety or all the stress in this room. Some of it would just boil down to that one simple truth right there. The point is, you don't have to stay there. You can come in alignment with God. You can repent of your sins and come to him and find grace and forgiveness and peace in everything that he lists here. Psalm 112, it says about righteous people. It says, the righteous shall never be moved. That's what David says. Here, it says, the Lord's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 112, 6 says, the righteous shall never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. He's steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his enemies. The concept there is like, because he's trusting God, because she's trusting God, she's not afraid when she hears about something bad in her family. She's not afraid when she hears that a loved one is going to die. She's not afraid. He's not concerned when the college doesn't pick him to be a part of that college. He's not concerned about not making the team. His heart's steady. She's confident in God. She's unshakable. He said, Psalm 15 comes right before the very last verse of Psalm 15. After it says, who will dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks truth with his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, nor does any evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe from the innocent. That's the whole psalm, right? He says, he who does these things shall never be moved. We talked about this recently in True North, but if you've got a clear conscience, one of the things that that can do is you can be confident. You don't have to be afraid. Remember the story I told? 
recently. A man wrote a letter to 10 powerful men in the city saying, I know what you did. If you don't leave till tomorrow, I'm going to tell everybody when nothing had happened. And nine of those powerful men left town because there was something against them because they didn't have a clear conscience, but one was fine. He said, what happened? I, tell me what happened. Tell me what you think I did because I know I didn't do it because he had a clear conscience. Those who do these things, they don't have to be moved. David says, even because of my integrity, I know that God's with me. Not afraid of death. Not afraid of what's going to happen in life. So much so, in verse 11, instead of being afraid of what happens in life, look what he says in verse 11. Back in Psalm 16, verse 11, he says, you make known to me the path of life. The path of life. That's a concept that we see introduced here, but we're going to talk about all summer long. That's actually what the whole series this summer is called, Path of Life. The reason it's called Path of Life is because in the book of Proverbs, that term, path, is sometimes translated path or sometimes translated way, and it describes a way of life or a path of living that God lays out in his word. There's a wise way and a foolish way. There's a way that's humble, and there's a way that's proud. There's a way that's diligent, and there's a way that's lazy. There's a way that's greedy for gain, and there's a way that's generous. And God's word, especially in the book of Proverbs, just like shows both paths. The biggest one, the most important one, is there's a way of purity and there's a way of sexual immorality. And he says those are two ways that a lot of people are choosing to go, one or the other. It's very clear. And it's written for people like us, written for a young man, right, a young woman to hear. The book of Proverbs is so good. And that's what we're going to talk about all summer long. And we're going to describe this in more detail, but I'd love for you to write it down for your last point, point number five. I want you to experience true happiness on God's path of life. Do you experience true happiness on God's path of life? The, the way of life that he directs you in, we're going to call it the path of life. It comes right here from verse 11. God's shown us what's good. He's shown us what's right. Jesus elaborates on this in a bigger way in John 15, 11, when he says, all the things I've told you, I've spoken to you, I did so that your joy may be full. Before they said that my joy be in you. I want you to have my joy, and I want your joy to be full. You know, when Christians tell you that the Christian life is hard, they are trying to warn you, but that's only half the story. Christian life is hard, but it's also better than any other life that you could choose. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way or a path that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So this comes up all the time in the Proverbs. There's a lot of ways that people could choose to live, but there's a way that seems right to people, but its end is death. In Proverbs 5, when the author writes about uh, the, the adulterous woman, there's this character in this book that's trying to get this guy to sin sexually. About this lady, he says, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. A lot of people out there that want you to sin, and they don't know the path of life. They're not thinking about what God says in his word will lead to your ultimate happiness. The path of life is described in Proverbs 6, 23. It says, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the path of life. The fact that we can be corrected by God's word, and we can read the book of Proverbs and say, oh, I'm not doing that. I should start doing that. Oh, I, I'm doing that wrong. Oh, I need to change that. That's a light and a lamp and a path that God lays out before us. Proverbs 10, 17. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path of life. But he who rejects reproof leads others astray. 
If you're a person who can never be corrected because you're the center of the universe and you're always right about everything. And everything your parents say or your siblings say to you about you that might not be good, you're like, nope, 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 I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Well, then you're not on the path of life because the path of life takes the correction and reproof that we get from God's word. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19, talk about it again. It says, but the path of the righteousness, of, of the righteous, is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Right? It's like you walk on this path of life, it's like you're going to see the fruits of that, and it's going to become more and more clear that you're doing what God wants to do. As the world turns further and further away from what God wants, if you stay doing what God wants, it's going to be more evident. Like light that, that shines, and then the dawn hits, and then boom, the sun's out. The next verse says, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness, and they do not know what they stumble over. They might identify that they're always stumbling and always sad, and there's always anxiety, and there's always fear, but they don't even know what they're stumbling over. They don't even get it, because they're in darkness. God's word is a light. Ultimately, in high school, you're going to have two paths before you're going to have God's path of life, and you're going to have whatever else, whatever other path is presented to you. That's the conclusion. That's, that's, that's it, right? It's like, that's what God has for us. And you're going to make that decision, really, in high school. Not when you're an adult, not when you're going out and living your life. You're really going to make the decision what path you're going to be on while you're in high school. The words of Moses, when he talked to the Israelites right before he was about to die, he said something very interesting. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, Blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. That's what I want for you, and that's what True North is all about. Let me pray that God would help us put this all into practice. God, we recognize you are good. We recognize that our good gifts are all tied up in you. Pray that all of us would just be ready and willing to follow you wherever you take us. We know that your word gives us so much direction, and we're excited to talk about the specifics of how you want us to live this year. I'm thankful for all the students here who are seeking you, that are living on this path of life, that are making good choices, that are choosing to reject sin because they want to do what's pleasing to you, and they want to do what's best for them. Pray that more and more people in True North would get on the path of life and would follow you, and that you would show them your goodness and show them your blessings. Please be better to them than they deserve each and every day as they follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.